housing for the aged action group, Hague for short, a housing group for older people run by older people. Present Raise the Roof! We advocate for secure, affordable and appropriate housing. So listen up on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month at 5.30pm on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. That's right, you're listening to Raise the Roof, Housing for the Aged Action Group's show all about older people and housing. My name is Fiona and today I am not joined by my co-host Shane as he is suffering from a toothache and he had to quickly be rushed, emergency style, to the dentist and also he hurt his back. Basically he's getting old. So I'm going to launch straight into an interview that I just did with Gerard Mansour, who is the outgoing Seniors Commissioner for Victoria. It's quite a long interview, but he covers some really fantastic content and I hope you enjoy it. We'll go straight into that now. Joined today by Gerard Mansour, who is the former Seniors Commissioner. How are you going today, Gerard? Oh, look, doing really well, Fiona. It's lovely to have had a short break from my role and yeah, get a chance to reflect. Yeah, well, it's really great that you can come on today and talk about your role. Um, before we start, listeners may not be aware of what a seniors commissioner is. How would you be able? How would you describe the role, and how did you end up in that role? Look, it was um, it was one of those uh, often with career changes. It was a, an accident of life. I'd um, moved to Canberra to take on a, a CEO role of the aged care peak body, but uh, very unfortunately, my wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and so I left that role and was a carer for her for some time. And then, um, like a lot of people suffering from cancer, there was a period of time where things stabilised, and it was just at the time that the government was responding to its parliament inquiry about the participation of older people and the creation of this role was one of the commitments and so yeah it was sort of like in a sense being in the right place at the right time for very tragic reasons obviously yeah. with um, with the, the you know subsequent death of my wife but um, it gave me a, a wonderful opportunity I think I learnt firsthand one of the things we'll talk about in a while the the challenges of longer-term health treatment and how it can isolate people from mm. the community so it was actually good for both of us that I was working part-time in the role because there was other things to talk about. Yeah. So the Seniors Commissioner role was established after an inquiry. Um, what what did they envisage that role would be in the, in the government? Because it's not a politician and it's not really a public service per se, is it? So how would you, how would you describe that? Yeah, look, it, it's, it's not a statutory role. So I had the opportunity, which means it's not a formal requirement to have it and there's no specific um, requirements in legislation. So it gave me a lot of opportunity to, with the, the ministers of the day, to refine and create the role in the way we wanted. And I think having listened to older people uh, through a lot of my career, I'd, I'd work with older people and I knew, which was a key driver in the parliamentary inquiry, lots of older people feel that as they 
they age, they become invisible to our community. Yeah. And so this role was really about giving a voice to older people. So if I had to pick, if you said to me, pick one word, um, and I often talked about that, and of course the voice has got a different construct now, but yeah. um, that was really what older people were saying to me. You know, yeah. We feel that as we get older, the community doesn't respect and value us in the same way. We feel in, that we're more invisible. Um, so this role was really to give that voice deep within government, to government ministers and government departments. And how long were you in the role for? A decade, 10 oh years. My. You know, you sort of wake up one morning and think, my God, where did those 10 years go? And so reflecting now, as you've been out of the role for a couple of months now, um, what do you think is your proudest achievement during those 10 years? Well, that's a very good question. If you don't mind, I'll have two bites at the cherry. Do it. Um, look, I think publishing in 2020 the eight attributes of ageing well in my report, Ageing Well in a Changing World, because I'd, I'd learnt in, in the first few years that there's so much richness from the life experience of older people and we weren't capturing it. You know, we weren't understanding. And all of us, you know, this is the first time all of us get older. And there's no book, you know, there's no story uh, about what that means. And I thought it'd be lovely to try to capture what are, what's the essence of growing older from an older person's perspective. And so that's what that report really, other than the gathering some data and evidence, it was trying to, to take the stories of older people and convert those into the attributes of ageing well for really for a couple of reasons. One is for policymakers and thinkers to take that forward, but also as a bit of a guide. I used to use that a lot in talking with the community about, you know, these are some of the things that are the key ingredients of getting the best out of your seniors' years. And I used to often share with them a bit of data that if, if you're reasonably well at, say, 60, you've still got a third of your life left to live. You know, so this is not about sort of just fading away. What are you going to do? And so that was sort of one. The other thing that... Um, was during COVID. I, I was, you know, having worked um, a part of my career supporting residential aged care. I was very worried about people living in residential aged care not being seen and understood and heard within government. And so I was able to set up a, a, an advisory group to advise me and then liaise significantly with the public health team, Brett Sutton, etc., to help them understand that we needed to get a better balance of visitation. I mean, they're not hospitals, they're people's homes and a number of, you know, many people live there for a number of years. And so I think, you know, looking back on that, um, I think that's a role that, that um, the departments and the governments appreciated that we bring the voices and help them understand that we can't treat aged care homes in the same way as we treat hospitals and so we've got to be a bit more sophisticated with our thinking so yeah there's a couple of those things come to mind for you yeah so that's that's really interesting the idea of condensing the things that you were hearing through speaking to not just people living in the community but also people living in residential aged care who are often forgotten about and not really considered as part of the community in a lot of ways, but then condensing that into eight kind of, you know, I guess broad areas. When you were reflecting that back to the community, when you were speaking to them, do those things ring true? Did, did the eight attributes um, feed back to you that that is what people felt were, were you know, intuitively correct? Yeah, very much so. And I, I, I did get a lot of positive reinforcement and, and there was um, only one other piece of work that I'm aware of of a similar vein uh, where it was sort of testing uh, whether we landed uh, correctly and it was a piece of work in the Indigenous communities in Western Australia, interestingly. And when I looked and aligned their results and they were a bit after um, the work that I had done, 
was almost exact mapping with one exception. And the way that Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders talk about country is itself a different attribute. And, and I would say that that piece of work that I did um, hadn't captured that part of it. I, I think the, the eight attributes talk strongly to diversity in a broad sense. So I think I captured that, but I didn't capture the unique role that country has for, for older people and, and what it means for them as they age if they become isolated mm. from country. And a lot of them, of course, move to different places and... Um, I think it's a, it is a, a feature of getting older for many people, that reflection about life and where am I coming from, but what's the world I'm leaving for, you know, my community, my children, my grandchildren. So I think um, that, that would be the one gap that if I was to do it again, I would try to build in something around country for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. But with that exception, I'd say it resonated very heavily. And so what was the biggest challenge for you in those 10 years? I think from the start, if I look over the 10 years, it was at the beginning finding that um, there was very little focus across government on older people. You know, if I'd be really open about it. And um, I felt I was often standing, like I'd often be given a report to comment on. And I sort of, my first feedback to them, well, you haven't actually got anything in it about older people. So yeah. what, what is it you're wanting me to comment on? Um, and I often felt I was like standing on a train station and the train's leaving the station. And I'm sort of waving and saying, well, what about older people? You know, where do you think they fit? But over the 10 years, I really did see a substantial change. Yeah. Um, and so I think it went from a challenge in the end to a strength where so many times people would show and demonstrate much more sophisticated thinking and the level of feedback I was able to provide was much more um, competent in, in what I could you know bring to the table and, and much more complex thinking that I was able to provide. So, I, yeah, I did see that shift um, occur. I, th I think we're probably facing the same sorts of challenges again um, I think that what often happens for older people and whether it's say around family violence or housing or digital connectivity the way it impacts older people can be different mm. and I think that's a challenge that still sits there for all the policymakers. Um, and, and to to remember that when we talk about older people think of the enormous diversity yeah. You know, a third of them come from a, a country other than, a, than Australia. Uh, many of those don't speak English as their native tongue, which is, of course, one of the significant challenges during COVID, wasn't it? How, mm -hmm. do, we, how do we get key messages to those people? So, yeah, I think, I think the challenge that I faced at the beginning still continues, that as life moves on, where do older pe people fit in government thinking and government decision-making? And I think... From my perspective, HAG was part of your group of people that you, group of organisations that you brought together as an advisory group. And it was really refreshing to see the explicit attempt to go across the silos in government because, like you say, every policy area affects older people and it affects them differently. So having those lack of silos or that attempt to break down those silos, I think, was a really important part of your role. Um, Part of what you did towards the end of your tenure was a really comprehensive survey of, I think it was over 47,000 47, Victorians. Yeah. Mm. Would you be able to tell us a little bit how, about how you went about it and what you heard when you were, when you were speaking to people in Victoria? Yeah, well, so the, the whole construct of providing advice to government, um, what I learnt over time is that anecdotal information is really important and valuable and there's always a place for it and the stories of individual people and diversity, we can't lose them. 
but it does help to have some macro analysis. And so I published a report, um, the minister released a report, my report in um, uh, at the end of 2020, which was our first attempt to understand from an older person's perspective at a macro level, what does it mean to age well? And despite all the limitations of online surveys, uh, because they always have a bias. And so you know, at that, in the first time round and the second time round, it wasn't just the survey that I was writing to. I had a whole separate consultation process, very much um, guided by peak bodies, local government, others to bring that diversity in the room with me people that weren't digitally connected and but notwithstanding that you know to have in any survey 47,000 people uh, responders is amazing and so I hope in the not too distant future the minister releases that report and so that we can have a much more comprehensive discussion about it but I think generally it validated what I was learning anyway you know in um, with probably the exception of the impact of COVID and um, because that was a, a significant event most of the other changes were sort of incremental and validated and so the sorts of issues that are identified won't surprise you at all Fiona it was for so many people that are moving through their seniors years they're on much more fixed incomes so they're either you know I think over 60 percent are full pensioners um, increasingly a, a smaller proportion will have superannuation uh, so if you've got housing stress financial stress in the current climate you can imagine anybody on fixed incomes is is finding life very challenging um, I think um, things like housing stress also put other pressures on older people and so um, we identified and, and talked about with the impact of ageism talking about the impact of elder abuse um, I think other issues that are absolutely critical at this particular point were was trying to better understand what does respect and value of older people mean. Um, and a particular area of focus towards the latter part of my work was the digital divide. I, I think this is a really big issue for us as we think about how rapidly the world is embracing digital connectivity. And of course, when you look at the national report, which population cohort is the most digitally disconnected? Of course, it's older people. Um, having said that, um, one thing that I did learn massively during COVID is that Often we all make assumptions, and I put myself in this category, of assuming older people don't actually want to learn and engage. Um, and I can remember one of the most amazing experiences I had during COVID. So you know how we're all on Zoom and things like that. I often, as a commissioner, was invited to do special awards and events. And so I'd got this um, reach out from um, one of the local governments where the neighbourhood house and the, the local council and others had come together. And they trained 20 people in how to use Zoom for the first time. And so it was lovely to be able to go to that graduation. But when I got there, I, I was actually really taken aback. Every one of those 80 pe uh, 20 people were from a non-English speaking background and they were most of them in their 80s. And so can you imagine the enthusiasm they had? Um, not only could they master Zoom, but the world that it opened up and what else they could learn. And they'd say things like, oh, my friends saw that I could do it. So they think, you know, why can't they do it too? So I think that's the other side of it is, is let's not dumb down older people. And yes, they may need separate strategies and separate supports. But I think digital connectivity is, is a really significant issue for older people. You touched upon housing there in the survey. Did When you were going out and not just looking at the survey results, but when you were speaking to people in, in the regions and in the cities and in the suburbs, um, was housing coming up for, for people that you were listening to and 
particularly I'm thinking about retirement housing issues as well, which I know you've had your eye on in your role too. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about what older people were telling you about housing? Yeah, look, there, there's a it's sort of like a like a lot of things that I dealt with, Fiona, like a continuum. Yeah, you could see on the positive side what stable, secure housing did for the well-being of the people that were fortunate enough to have that. So whether it was people that owned their own home or had long-term tenancy agreements at affordable rates, uh, people that had gone into retirement villages, you know, with a clear understanding around the financial side of that, um, and generally they had a, a fairly higher level of satisfaction with, with that sort of living. Uh, to the other side where people that say living in caravan parks who uh, are in situations in an area that you know you and I talked about and, and the you know the senior Victorians advisory group named that for government as a, as a key emerging issue you know the people a lot of people that are living in that aren't living in purpose-built long-term accommodation this is the all they could find and so the regulatory structure and system is inferior when you compare it say to the residential tenancies act so I think that that was the um, part of the experience. The other was um, the particular challenges that particular communities have. So if you look at it, say, from an LGBTIQ perspective, um, the sense of family can change for many of those people, of who, who are the family, the people that um, that they value and respect. And so do we don't have enough progressive housing models for people, you know, in that. So same with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, people. So I think, I think the sophistication of housing is an area where I, I you know, I realise that, you know, the the model that we've built of a standard approach to housing is, isn't sufficient. It was great to see government prioritise women over 55 um, in terms of public housing, but I think that's only, you know, one of the steps in, in the direction we need to go. You're listening to Raise the Roof on 3CR 87... Oh, what am I saying? 855 on the AM dial and also digitally on 3cr.org.au. We're joined by Gerard Mansour, the Seniors Commissioner for Victoria up until recently. Speaking of commissioners, Victorian government has a number of commissioner roles. Um, We're obviously at HAG most familiar with you and our members loved having you come to our events and facilitate those events both online and in person. So you'll be sorely missed in that role. And also the Residential Tenancies Commissioner who we have a lot to do with around the areas of res parks, which we've mentioned on this show before. And New South Wales just today announced a Residential Tenancies Commissioner. I believe they're the only other jurisdiction that has one. But we also have in Victoria the Multicultural Commissioner, the Gender Equality Commissioner, the LGBTI Commissioner, the Mental Health and Wellbeing Commissioner. So we have a lot of them. Some of them are in law and some of them aren't. Um, what role do you think senior or commissioner roles have in government? Do you think that they're an important part of, of the functioning of government? And do you know what the future is for the seniors commissioner role that you've just vacated? Um, I'll start with that one. No, I don't. I, I think it's one of the, the um, decisions that government's going to need to make. It's uh, the role of Commissioner for Senior Victorians and the other role that I had as a result of the Family Violence Royal Commission that, that was equally important to me was Ambassador for Elder Abuse Prevention. So, yeah, that, that's a now a decision of government um, as, as non-statutory roles. Do they continue those roles? Um, what's what's the role of commissioners? I think it's really um, it, it fits two different types, if you like, at a high level. 
There's the, what I would call the more representative advocacy voice-based roles like the one I had, which is the LGBTIQ commissioner as well. Um, so these, our role is really to bring the diversity and um, complexity, or was, and, um, I've got to get used to that. Uh, <laughs> my role was, um, like those other commissioners that are non-statutory, to bring those voices and sophistication to government. Um, and it's different to the role of government departments. That's one thing that was really clear to me is the richness of feedback and the complexity of feedback that I was able to gather and bring back. Um, no government sets of employees have the time and the resources to do and replicate what I was doing. So I think it was a value add in terms of uh, departmental analysis and government decision making broadly to have that richness of understanding um, and then able to contribute on areas to point out the diversity and I think for example Fiona um, at the Senior Victorians Advisory Group when we talked about the mental health reform for example to have the senior leaders of the department come and talk with representative advocates of older people um, enormously empowers them to think about the, the specific needs of older people. Uh, the other roles are the more statutory ones, the ones that are required to be have and had, and they typically have their obligations and responsibilities in an act of parliament, and they'll report to those. Whereas the type of commissioner role that I had, um, the the focus and the priorities are worked out pretty much each year with the minister of the day. And so that, that's how my role would work. We would sit down towards the end of a previous year. I would obviously meet with the minister very regularly. Um, they would have their priorities. I would have mine. And we'd work out, you know, what were the ones that would dominate my work and priorities. And so, you know, for example, when we launched the most recent survey, it was the minister and myself that launched the fact that we were calling on older people. It was Minister Brooks at the time and myself um, launched the survey. So there was a lot of collaboration. But in the end, my job, was to be out in the community as much as possible, gathering that intelligence and bringing back and trying to make sense of what that meant for government decision making. So you were a real conduit between older people in the community and decision makers, which I think is potentially um, something that other, other roles don't have, because in some ways you could be that squeaky wheel and you could shine a light onto the specific issues of people that don't have voices normally in government, apart from when you vote, um, people often don't have an opportunity to have their voices heard. So do you think um, do you think it's really important for the Victorian government to have roles particularly for marginalised communities like older people and LGBTI people? Uh, absolutely, because I think, I mean, my role um, was to try to look through the eyes of older people. You know, that was really, and so if I could answer the question through that lens, not so much my view, but what I would think older people would say to me if I asked that question, they would talk about exactly the same things that they provided to the parliament when it did its inquiry back in 2011. They would say, um, back then they said, we feel that as we get older, the community doesn't respect and value us in the same way. Um, we feel as we get older, we're often invisible to policy makers and decision makers. And we would want a voice within government to, to understand and hear and reflect you know, um, so I think that's what they would see as as the um, the priorities. So I think they would come back to those same core issues that lead to the creation of the role in the first place. Nothing much changes, does it really? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so we're just about out of time, but I wanted to finish up by asking you what you think is the number one most important thing the Victorian government can do to improve the lives of older Victorians. If you don't mind, again, I might have two bites at the cherry. Yeah, we can um, ask for two things. I, I would like to put a, a, a like a specific thing, and we talked about it, or I talked about it a bit earlier, which is the digital divide. Mm. I think as, um, as an emerging issue... We just think about how communication and information flows. Um, so the people that aren't digitally connected, and and uh, you know that's that's not a small number of older people. We're talking, you know, more than a third, somewhere between a third and a half of older people are significantly, you know, disconnected digitally. And as the world rapidly moves that way, including government services, huge risk of people being left behind. So I think it needs and calls for a specific plan and strategy to address digital connectivity. Um, I don't think it is just older people. I think this is an example of where I'd say, well, look, let's name the broader issue of, of connectivity and have older people as a priority cohort. I think it's not just yeah. about older people. Um, I think the the other one would be um, calling on, on government to release my most recent report. Um, you know, I can't think of it. You know, you can imagine from my point of view, coming off the survey last time, I got we got 5,000 people respond to the survey and I was blown away. I thought, gee, you know, 5,000 people took the time to fill in the survey and this time to find 47,000 people I think there's a that in itself says something yeah you know older people want to have a say and they did talk and I tried to write the report to be true to their messages so I think it'd be a fantastic asset for government and the community to be able to have a conversation release the report respond to the conclusions that are in the report and then go back and look at the the basis that they've already created which is fantastic you know the government has launched its Aging Well Action Plan. Yep. And so here's an opportunity to go back to that and fine-tune that, listen to the voices of older people and fine-tune that. And that was, if you like, the high-level methodology. Yep. It was let's go back, test where older people are up to and see what refreshing we need to do in terms of the plan. So I think it would be a great conversation piece. Um, and so I hope um, government releases that in the not-too-distant future. I have to say 47,000 people is a really impressive number to complete a survey. <laughs> it's incredible. And I do like the way in the very beginning when you were launching that, you actually co-designed the questions with the community as well. So some of our HAG members who have been at risk of homelessness in the past, definitely suffering from the digital divide and not through lack of knowledge, but because of poverty a lot of the time. Sometimes I think government thinks if they roll out some courses and some training, that will solve it. But actually a lot of the time it's just pure, unable to afford the internet. Um, but yeah, they were involved. They participated in the design of the questions and they were very happy to be involved. Um, so I think the process itself was really sound and I'd love to have a look at the data. So hopefully if the government's listening, and I know they do sometimes, they can um, perhaps make that a recommendation for the next term. It would be great. Or the current term. Would be, wouldn't it? If I could, I could finish with a vote of thanks to all those people and there were, you know, we did 12 different consultation sessions just to build the survey and get the language right you know does this make sense to you know because um, is the language right will people from non-english speaking backgrounds understand that terminology um, and the other thing that, that I did do and I don't want to just focus on the survey we did a whole extensive consultation process focusing on people that were not digitally connected and again we got advice
advice from people like yourself, Fiona, and and you know your your members about how to do that in an effective way. So the report, um, hopefully, when people do read it, it straddles both. It, it yeah. brings the voices of both of those to the table. Thanks so much for coming in today, Jared. It's been a lovely conversation, and it's lovely to see you again. All the best with whatever is. In, ahead of you. Um, I'm sure you won't be retiring for very long and you'll be back in the public sphere. We'll be able to tap on your shoulder again, I'm sure. Um, so thanks again and we'll see you again soon. Look forward to it and finish with the congratulations to you and Hager. Without without your support, um, how worse off older people would be in terms of a housing. So a big tick from me to you for the great work you do. Thanks, Jared. Three CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Welcome back. You're listening to Raise the Roof on 3CR. Unfortunately, we have just about run out of time. We are still at um, Housing for the Aged Action Group at Ross House. If you're interested in being involved in any of our campaign work, you are absolutely most welcome to, and that includes things like what Gerard was talking about, which is getting involved in um, submissions and being consulted on with various issues to do with older people. Um, if that's the case and you want to get involved, you can call 03 7389 and if you are an older Victorian who is finding themselves in housing stress or at risk of homelessness, you can call our Home at Last um, phone number, which is 1300 765 178. And I am now going to go out with a song. We are going to be listening to um, Coloured Stone, House of Dreams. See you later. Medicine.
Ha! Uh-huh. 